Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome into Fantasy Football Today at DFS on Tuesday, March 22nd. I am Frank Stample, joined by another great guest as part of our DFS Deep Dives in off-season interview series uh, that we'll be doing over the next couple of months as we you know, get through the NFL draft and then we'll start to work in some best ball content as well. And I mentioned, today I have one of the best. DFS players and content creators out there, director of analytics for Establish the Run. You can hear him on the Establish the Edge Fantasy Football Podcast and making appearances on Establish the Run Podcast as well. Make sure you follow him on Twitter, at Two Hats One Mike. What's going on, Mike Leone? Frank, it's so good to see you, man. I feel like it's been been way too long since we've chatted and, and hung out, so thanks for having me on. Yeah, for those who don't know, way back in the day, Mike and I and <laughs> myself, we used to work together, and I actually have a fun little story, maybe a picture or two that I'll share a little bit later on in the podcast on the video side here, youtube.com slash fantasy football today. Uh, but he does great work. Again, make sure you follow him on Twitter at two hats, one Mike, and uh, check out all the great work that they put out over at Established to Run. And speaking of Established to Run, Mike, have you been doing a lot of yard work this offseason? I know you, know, you and Evan Silva, you, you get into it quite often. Establishing the lawn. See, I value my time more than Ivan Silva. Silva's out there. He thinks he's bragging that he's out there doing hours of yard work when, you know, uh, I'm fine just having someone else mow my lawn for me. It looks super nice. I get an hour or two back in my day. So Silva thinks he's boasting, but it's really, really not a boast. He doesn't know what it's like for the nerds behind the screen, right? Like, yeah, I, I would say like you and me, but like, I, yeah, clean and soft. <laughs> I would say like you and me, but you're definitely doing like way more, like way smarter things than I am. So, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, all right, so here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna like pick his brain. I mean, again, like one of the best minds in the industry, and we'll just jump in here. Uh, do you consider yourself an elite GPP bro when it comes to NFL DFS? Love the GPP bro moniker. Uh, I, I don't think I consider myself an elite GPP bro, but I have like a niche that I know I'm good at and just like understanding the dynamics of certain contests and how to best play those contests. So um, like one thing I think I'm pretty good at is, you know, even though like my title is director of analytics, like very nerdy and whatnot, but I think like one of my biggest strengths has nothing to do with numbers and it just being able to withstand getting kicked in the teeth a few weeks in a row in DFS. And if you're playing like the correct contrarian approach, especially in these small field tournaments, when the chalk goes off, you're just going to have no shot and being okay, being like, okay, I'm going to reduce my chances of having a sweat. I'm going to reduce my like odds of surviving throughout the day, but I'm going to increase my chances of winning or winning a lot when I actually win. 
Yeah, and that's something we talked about a lot this past season. Mike McClure, who we have as, as one of our co-hosts here on the podcast, I mean, he plays a lot of GPPs, and he goes out there like you, Mike, and, and a lot of contrarian approaches, and you know, he preaches to everyone that if you want to play that way, you just have to know that there are going to be a lot of losing weeks, but the weeks that you win hopefully make up for all of those weeks that you lose as well. So it's not an easy thing to do, constantly losing, but when you win, hopefully you win big. And, and speaking of that, you know, you mentioned smaller fields and... Overall, like, what is your weekly breakdown? Like, what are you playing in season NFL DFS? Like, are you playing any cash at all? Is it just GPP at this point? I'm playing almost entirely tournaments. If I'm playing cash games, it's like a really rare circumstance, but I think there's like a super specific edge for that week. And that will happen more often on a short slate, like a playoff slate or something, than it will on a full, you know, 10, 12 game regular season main slate. And then within tournaments, I'm almost entirely playing smaller field tournaments. So 50 to a hundred person size or 50 to 200 person size tournaments, maybe sometimes like get up to like 400, 600, um, but try to stay under a thousand person GPPs. Similar to like the cash game thing. If there is a week where I think doing mass multi-entry and like a real large field tournament makes sense. Like there's a stack I think that in MME is going to be like one, 2% owned. And like, maybe it's too risky for a small field tournament. Like maybe I'll play that stack heavy, like in a, in a full 150 MME set. But for the most part, really focusing on, you know, the 50 to 200 person tournaments, play some high stakes tournaments, like the Thunderdome. That's one I really like um, just because of the, the specific dynamics of that tournament. Are you strictly playing DraftKings at this point, Mike? Or are you mixing in like some FanDuel, some Yahoo? I know obviously there's a ton of different DFS providers out there. I'm mixing in FanDuel. I play, I feel like I just better suited for DraftKings, the way the scoring system works. And I have a better handle on what my opponents are going to do, which is such a massive part of playing GPPs. I think the general consensus is that FanDuel is actually a little bit softer for tournaments. So if you're newer to playing DFS, I do think, FanDuel is a better spot to start, but with me playing like higher stakes, small field tournaments, being able to have that really strong grasp on what my opponents are going to do on DraftKings, uh, it makes it a little bit more profitable for me. And then once in a while, I'll play Yahoo. If I do MME, actually, um, Yahoo tends to be the spot that I do it where I feel a little bit more comfortable just kind of like playing the pure projections on Yahoo. And they've had some good deals, some good overlays, especially last year. Um, so I'll mix that in, but I would say like 75% what I'm doing is like small field tournaments on DraftKings. All right. And do you have specific names? I know you mentioned the Thunderdome is one of them, but any other specific contests that you really like to play more often than not? Yeah. So the Juke is a really good one. That's a $400 entry tournament, I think. And it's a three max. It's generally 200 to 400 people. There's a check pass that's uh, you know $777 entry that's 150 people three max that I like to do and there's some other contests at lower price points that mimic these payout structures and in the payout structures a lot of times what I'm looking for is kind of flat at the very top like the top five payout spots top five to ten payout spots but I don't really care about the min cash so much right because I'm making like pretty boom or bust tournaments I'm not like trying to grind out a profit by min cashing constantly. I'm trying to kind of like, you know, be in that top 1% or not cash. Um, so that's what I'm looking on payout structures. This spin move is another one. That's a single entry that sometimes I think it's like $300 entry. That's like a hundred person field. But um, even at 
like 150 and lower. You can, you really at any price point, you can find these tournaments at about 200 or so people. You might have to go up to like 500 or so people when you start dropping down below $100, but they exist out there. And I think for me, like that amount of the entrance is my most profitable zone. All right. So you mentioned that depending on the slate, you know, you could find yourself playing some MMEs, but more mm-hmm. often than not, it's it's mostly, is it just single entry and three max? I mean, that's what you're mostly gravitate, gravitating towards? Yeah, I'm mostly making, let's say, um, I do a show on Sunday nights called Tilt Space with uh, Joe Holka. Oh, I've seen Overset. it. Yeah, I've seen yeah. it. <laughs> the Tilt Space is a good time. So I'll make, we usually make like three teams in those types of contests together. So I'll split those teams and then I might make three or four of my own teams on DraftKings. So I generally have like five or six teams on DraftKings between you know the ones that I'm splitting with the Tilt Space guys and the ones I'm making my own, and then a couple on FanDuel as well. I'm probably still like under ten teams total that I'm making. I'm just hand building those teams. So that's like generally what I'm doing. All right. So I mean, talk to me more about single entry and three max, right? Like obviously. You figured something out because you've been pretty profitable and you've had some big takedowns here, especially the past couple of seasons. But uh, what is your approach when it comes to single entry and three max? Like how it's tough because I feel like single entry and three max, like you still want to work in some chalk. But like, obviously, this is a format where like if you get contrarian, like you can be really contrarian because a lot of people are probably not looking to get that different uh, in single entry and three max. So what is your approach specifically in those formats? Yeah, I think... The reason I have an edge is in some ways people do like the opposite of what they should do in these smaller field (laughs) tournaments because they kind of treat them as like, oh, I'm going to throw my cash game in this. It's a small field tournament. Um, You know, I don't have to get overly correlated because it's a small field tournament. And the way my brain works, like you should almost be doing the exact opposite because if other people are playing their cash game lineups or the best values and they don't think they need to get as different because it's a small field tournament then you're going to get higher ownerships on certain players and that risk reward of you being contrarian flips where you can just have I've had a few weeks where my teams haven't even been good and I've won just because it's been like a chalk catastrophe, right? Like I'm just completely levered, like opposite of what the majority of the field is doing. So I'll have, you know, two or three weeks throughout the year where, you know, half the field's kind of drawing dead just because two or three chalk pieces didn't hit. And those are the weeks that I'm really trying to win. It's kind of the moniker is like win the low scoring weeks, which sounds ridiculous, but people kind of approach it as they're trying to get the highest score possible when really you just need to beat all of your opponents. And if you can do that with a low score, that's fine. And then speaking to the correlation side of it as well, I think there's a tendency for people in smaller field tournaments to think, I don't need as much upside. So I I don't have to correlate as much. I don't need to stack as much. But really the reason you stack is less about the pure upside and more about getting less things right, okay? So if I have a double stack with a bring back and that game goes off, I've gotten sort of one thing right and it's affected four of my players, you know, half my roster. And that's huge. Whereas if you're playing in like a Millie Maker, the actual upside is a little bit higher, not, you know, extending that stack wider because you sort of need to hit the pure nuts, right? So if you think about the Bengals last year, there were a couple of times that stack with Burrow went absolutely nuclear at the end of the season. If you were playing in a small field tournament and you had T Higgins the week he went nuts and then like Chase and Boyd were fine, like that's kind of what you want in a double stack is one guy goes off, the other guy doesn't hurt you, right? And that's where the correlation comes in. 
But if you're in the million maker, you might want to single stack that and hope that you get the one guy that goes nuclear because there's going to be another wide receiver out there somewhere on the slate that is outscoring like the just okay game from the Bengals second wide receiver. So that's the way I think through correlation. I think a lot of people get it backwards. It's actually less about maximizing upside and more about minimizing the number of things you get right, minimizing the number of decision points. All right. So, Mike, it sounds like, you know, you obviously play in some high stakes uh, contests here, but you, what are some differences that you've noticed, if any, between you know some of the lower stakes single entries and the higher stakes? Because I think you know a lot of people listening to this or watching this, you know, they're probably not playing in the Thunderdome, for example. Right. But absolutely. Uh, you know, if they're if they're looking to get into uh, low stakes single entry contests, I mean, what are some of the differences you've noticed between low stakes versus high stakes? Yeah, the difference is I think in the lower stakes. Sometimes the ownership can be a little bit harder to peg down, which, you know, oddly can make lower stakes like a little bit more difficult to to figure out what you should do. But at the same time, that presents an opportunity sometimes to actually play the better plays where some of the guys that have been hot recently that, you know, in DFS three, four years ago would have been really popular, like in high stakes, like those guys aren't necessarily popular if they aren't good plays on the week and lower stakes there's a little bit more recency bias in the ownership and you can, you can take advantage of that a little bit and people are a little bit more prone to not, you know, just throw their cash game lineup. So um, I do think you can actually eat a little bit more chalk in the lower stakes because generally it's coming in at, at lower ownership and there's some opportunities there. Uh, this isn't, you know, I mean, you can see it in like million maker ownerships, which I know is not a small field tournament, but as like a lower stakes tournament, like sometimes the ownership discrepancies, are absolutely massive. Um, and even in like cash games, double ups, you can see the lower stakes, double ups versus the higher stakes. There'll be guys whose ownership swing like 15 points. So you can be a little bit more conscious of playing the best plays in lower stakes. I do think there are some similarities though, where you still, you still want to take advantage of the people, the fact that people I think are too risk averse in a small field tournament, almost regardless of the stakes. Yeah. I guess that makes sense too, right? Because like the lower the stakes, the more risk, uh, the more risks people are willing to take. So they're willing to like go out there and, and do things that are maybe a little bit more different. So that's why you're saying, you know, people can maybe rely on chalk a little bit more in these lower stakes contests. And you mentioned, you know, how things have um, changed the past couple of years a little bit. And, and what has st- stood out to you? I mean, this is a loaded question, right? But like NFL DFS, like what has changed most in your opinion, the past couple of seasons? I think. I mean, you're not sneaking like really good values by anybody at this point in time. Right. Um, once in a while, you know, you'll get a, a really strong like GPP play that no one's going to play. But for the most part, it's difficult. I'd say if I depend it down two things, I guess the first thing is people are relying on content a little bit more and projections a little bit more, which goes back to like that recency bias. Like people aren't chasing game logs as much, which you know, that used to be an opportunity where people were making mistakes where like a guy just ran, you know, super hot on efficiency for a few weeks and that player would be overowned, be a pretty good fade. You get less of those opportunities. In fact, sometimes it almost swings around the opposite way where it's like, if you take like a Bayesian approach, like it's almost like maybe we should be chasing these game logs because nobody, the field's not buying into it. So maybe there's something like we're missing numerically or we're overly dismissive of like a hot fluky stretch where there were times last year about, you know, three, four games in where like playing Cooper cup and playing Jamar chase. There's, there's a pretty good opportunity, even though they started so hot, their salaries went up, you know, projections might've been a little bit lagging in terms of 
how to treat these guys. And there were actually some really good opportunities to play those guys. Whereas in the past, I don't think that would have happened. So there's been, there's been a 180 there. And then the other aspect that's difficult. And again, it relates to people relying on content a little bit more, but just the ownership projections throughout the week, like sometimes it's difficult. Like the guys you think you're going to play on Thursday, cause they're going to be low owned. They come Sunday morning. Aren't. So you really need to have your finger on the pulse throughout the week. There was a week where I was like, Julio Jones, no one's going to play him first week back. He's too cheap. And like, I kind of got take locked early on the week on that. And then come the weekend, it kind of seemed like people were going to play him. And I really shouldn't have played him. Like results of what he did aside, just process wise, you know, he comes in at like 15, 20%. And it's like, Oh, you know, I was hoping like five to eight. So you really, you, you gotta have an idea of how the market's shifting throughout the week. Cause it's definitely not stagnant. Yeah, I remember that week. I think I wound up playing Julio Jones in cash. And if, if I'm playing him, you, pro- <laughs> you probably shouldn't play him because I'm like the chalk monster. So, uh, yeah, I think he came in at like sub 5K or something like that. There was no AJ Brown. And just, I don't know. I think he yes, he had yeah. like four for 40. You know, it was like the most Titans Julio Jones game that he could possibly give us. Uh, Mike, you mentioned earlier stacking and how important correlation is. And, you know, I was wondering, you know, a couple of times this year, it almost felt like I was overdoing it with stacks. I mean, have you noticed that yourself where maybe people are trying to get too cute and trying to stack too many pieces within one game where maybe you're double or triple stacking and you're trying to bring back one or two players within the same game? What is the optimal way to stack at this point? Because I feel like this is probably something that has changed over the past couple of years as well. Yeah, it's difficult because it's such a dynamic question to answer. I do feel like this past year, like stacking ran a little bit bad just on variants where there were a lot of weeks where you know, there was just no bring back that you realistically would have played that went off and, or, or the single stacks did really well and not the double stacks. And I do think there was a little bit of, of poor variance there. So if I'm in a small field tournament, like I'm generally trying to find a double stack with a bring back. Cause I really want to limit the things I get right, but you do want to be like really aware of the type of team that you're stacking and what you need to happen. So a team like the Dallas Cowboys where they're, you know, we've seen them be real run heavy or real pass heavy based on script. It seems like, and that's something I want to look into this off season actually a little bit more is like we have pass rate over expectation to tell, which we might talk about in a little bit, but just tells us how aggressive teams are throwing the ball. But I do think some teams are when they're behind, like they're really aggressive when they're had, they're really not aggressive. Like the game script dictates what they do more so than other teams. So a team like the Cowboys I kind of want to bring back because I think they need to be pushed. You know, I want to double stack. I want to play the game where they're playing from behind and throwing a lot, playing really up tempo. Um, Whereas a team like the Buffalo Bills that does have a really high pass rate over expectation, they run a lot of plays, they have a really high team total each week. Like they don't necessarily need to be pushed. You know, if they score 35 points, which they can do on any given week, it's not a prerequisite that, you know, the Houston Texan Texans like push them and it's a close game. You know, there was definitely a game or a couple of games, you know, one versus Washington, one versus Houston, where there just really wasn't a bring back. So, uh, and Tampa Bay is another example with Brady where they're just throwing no matter what the script is in the second half. Like you don't need to be pushed. Not that you should avoid the bring back, but like you don't, you definitely don't want to approach it as like, okay, I absolutely have to have a bring back. You want to be a little bit open to, how is this stack going to work and is it a prerequisite or not? Yeah, and that's something I've talked about multiple times already this offseason where, and the example I always use is because I'm a Jets fan. I'll use the Jets. You're a Bills fan. Let's use the Bills, right? Like, 
that game has a massive spread. That's like a 14 point spread. The Bills have like a 31 point implied team total. And it's like, at that point, you shouldn't have a bring back because the game is not expected to be close. The Jets are terrible. Like their offensive uh, offensive efficiency is not good. So it's like at that point, why even play a Jets player in this spot? And specifically with the Bills, I think we've seen this more recently, but the Bills and the Cardinals stand out to me where they just spread the ball out so much. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, like... Mike, maybe that's good because like you'll get players at lower ownership, like it's harder to predict kind of thing. But you know, on a given week, it's like we didn't know Diggs, Emmanuel Sanders, Cole Beasley, Dawson Knox. Same thing with the Cardinals. It's it, it felt like they had five different pass catchers between a you know ten and twenty percent target share, where it was like D Hop, uh, Chase Edmonds, Christian Kirk, and trying to figure that out. I mean, is that something that maybe you should lean into because it's like more volatile, or do you just try and stay away? It's, it'd be, all this comes down to, to like how good of a value and what the ownership is going to be on all these guys, right? On a given week, which is something else I want to point out. Like even on the bring backs, if you have a guy that's like the third or fourth best tight end value and it's not going to be played a ton on the opposing team, like, uh, yeah, I'm going to throw them in. Like that makes sense to correlate that. But if the guy's like a horrific value or it's a team that's super spread out, like you might not do the bring back. And then same thing with the question you're asking with the stacking. Um, if I'm looking at the bills on a week and I can get Dawson Knox and Gabriel Davis together, like super low owned, I might, you know, I might, I might gamble a little bit on that double stack, but you know, there were weeks where like Diggs was pretty highly owned and it's like, well, maybe I'll just single Gabriel Davis, like, or, or Cole Beasley, whoever it is. And especially when the quarterback bills, Arizona being your two examples has that rushing element to them where they don't necessarily need to throw for 400 yards to, to hit their upside or, you know, but you look at a team like the Falcons were always a good example. They, their offense obviously dropped off a ton last year. So they weren't a successful DFS stack, but for a few years, it was kind of like when Matt Ryan went nuts, you know, it's 303, right? Like, and, and it's pretty condensed passing tree and we know who it's going to go to. So understanding how volatile the target shares are is super important. Um, in small field, like I'm double stacking the Bengals with Burrow. He's not running a lot. We know three guys are going to get like 60 plus percent of the target share. Um, like they don't play a fourth wide receiver. Uh, so I, you definitely want to keep in mind how volatile like the playing time is going to be on the players that you would reasonably pick for your stack. All right. Again, we have two interview pods coming per month during April uh, bi-weekly. So keep a lookout for those. And then once we get through the NFL draft, we'll uh, we'll reintroduce Mike McClure and Sienna Jad. We'll get them back here on the podcast. Maybe Heath Cummings. I know he's big into best ball. So uh, just an idea there, a programming update for the offseason. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, the director of analytics, we've got to pick his brain about some stats, right? We'll do that here on Fantasy Football Today DFS. All right, so I mentioned Mike Leone is the director of analytics at ETR. And Mike, what are you paying attention to most? I mean, there's a lot of things, obviously, on a given week. And I almost wonder if it's too much information, right? I mean, there's snap rates, there's target share, there's red zone usage. And something that you've mentioned, which I know that you're very big on because I see you tweet it out every single week, pass rate over expectation. What are you doing with all these analytics? What actually matters for DFS? Yeah, this is always a difficult question for me to answer because... Like the, the simplest answer, which sometimes isn't very helpful, is that ETR, when we're doing our projections, we're basically trying to put all this stuff together and give the best projection possible. So at the end of the day, 
it's not like when I'm making my lineup on Sunday, I'm like, oh, this this team has a really high pass rate. This team, does, you know, I I've kind of already factored that in to the projections and our ceiling projections for the week. But a few things that I really like try to pay attention to in terms of like you like you mentioned snap rates and target share. I think understanding how these work together and proportionately is super important, right? Because I think sometimes people are like, oh, this guy saw like this amount of targets when he played X amount of snaps. Well. You know, some guys are going to be low snap rate guys that have a high targets per out run, and that's just who they are. And you don't want to necessarily dock them for that snap rate. What you do want to notice is like, okay, their snaps are increasing and they have a high targets per out run. Okay, that might unleash a little bit of upside here. You know, someone that is earning targets and now is going to play more. Um, and the flip side of that too, you know, someone might play 98% of snaps, but they're not earning targets. Like the target component is the most important component there. Uh, it's more important than, so there's like a give and take there where like there's a certain threshold you want to be on the field, but then once you hit that threshold, are you earning targets? That's the most important piece. And then as far as the pass rate over expectation, that's a metric that basically says how frequently does a team pass relative to what we would expect? And there's a bunch of data through a package called NFL Fast R um, that these guys on Twitter have done like a great job with, but essentially they have a formula that says for every single play, what would the average team do in this situation? Like what's the probability they would pass? And then you just compare that to what the team actually does. And that can be really helpful because again, we can isolate teams like Buffalo and Tampa Bay that don't need to be pushed. Like we don't need to freak out that the game script's going to be too positive and limit upside. Like we understand how they're going to play regardless of game script the game script too can be so volatile so it's good to have like this anchor which is pass rate over expectation that says you know all else equal like this is how aggressive this team is relative to other teams and it lets us compare teams on an even playing field like we compare but we can compare buffalo's play calling to the jets play calling even though they're in vastly different game scripts so i think that one's super valuable there is one that's not crazy baked into our projections. So I do like to look at it as a tiebreaker, think of a range of outcomes. And that's Brandon Thorne's O-line, D-line mismatches column that he does for ETR each week. Like, uh, obviously I'm biased working for ETR, but that is one of my go-tos every single week because that stuff's a little bit harder to quantify. And I think as a result, people sometimes are too dismissive of that. Um, even in betting and gambling too, like just on sides, I think that happens sometimes, but especially as far as evaluating running back plays for the week. Yeah, Mike, I, I, look, I think if you want to truly get into O-line versus D-line, you, you you probably need to mow your own lawn, dude. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's like I'm a not real, like... my own lawn, so I'm calling in the help. <laughs> uh, you know, but hey, I, I know you're kidding, but like it is... I think one of the things too is knowing like who to rely on for certain things and not having to do everything yourself is like so huge. Like, like you're getting for the fantasy baseball season. Like that, that's another big one where like, yeah, you're probably not going and checking everybody's velocity yourself. I don't know. Maybe you are Frank, but like, there's probably some people you can rely on. That's like going to catch that stuff. And like the big thing is knowing how to aggregate that information and use it, you know, in the best decision making possible. And that's like something Levitan, Adam Levitan for us at ETR are so good at. Like he's not trying to be the smartest guy in the room. He's not trying to like have to grind film himself, right? Like he knows <laughs> who to rely on. He knows what stats matter. And, you know, just trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. 
Yeah, no, obviously, like, we're having fun, like, the hand in the dirt takes and stuff, but... Hand in the dirt, baby. But, like, no, what you're saying makes sense, too, right? Like, I think people need to realize what they're good at, right? And then rely on other people in the areas where you are lacking. And this is a fantasy football DFS podcast, but you mentioned fantasy baseball, and um, on the fantasy baseball side, I, I had the main event champion last year in the NFBC. He won everything. Phil Dussault, you might've heard of him. And I had him on earlier in the offseason. He's like, the worst mistake you can make is try and do something that you're not comfortable doing. So he runs all these different algorithms and he has all these Excel sheets and he's running all these different formulas and things. And he's, he's like, he, to, he told me, he said, if people are trying to copy me and do what I do, it's not going to work out well for them. Unless, of course, like they have expertise in that area. But again, like you, if you try and get outside of your comfort zone, I'm not telling you not to expand your mind and like try and learn these things. Of course, like you want to have as much information as possible and, and learn about what you're doing. But like trying to do too much or try and do something that you're not comfortable doing, it could be worse off for you than actually, you know, just focusing on the things that you're really good at. So I think that's a, a good point that you bring up there, Leone. Uh, let's talk about projections. So I, do you make all the projections for ETR like preseason and in season? Because that's a lot. Yeah, I'm, le <laughs> I'm leading the projections team. We're doing like we have our offseason projections kind of done uh, for this season already to help generate our best ball rankings. There's obviously a ton of guesswork and ambiguity there. I get help like very specifically a lot of hands-on help from Jack Miller and Mark Dankenbring. Mark was like super fantastic help last year. He did some uh, podcasts on established to run for us when we were doing our uh, top 150 updates throughout the year. So like having those guys is a huge help because like we're just pouring through everything, like getting our inputs correct. Like I've done a lot of work on, you know, some backend algorithms that has like a certain stuff set, but like some of the playing time stuff is just, grunt work basically. Um, and, and, and like combination of grunt work and critical thinking. And then we're able to rely on the expertise of Levitan of Evan Silva to sort of like intertwine everything that we're doing. So it's a lot of fun making the projections. And I know like you put on our show notes, like, is it, is it, a, is it too much of a grind or is it helpful to like learn those team tendencies? But um, I, it is super helpful to kind of understand the range of outcomes. Like, cause some players projections are more fragile than others. And even in a floor ceiling metric, like we have ceiling projections, it's tough to always like completely represent, you know, this guy could play, you know, a 50, 50 time share at running back, or he could be the workhorse this week. Like we're really not sure. And when you're doing the projections actively each week, you're like able to spot those situations pretty quickly. Projections, man. It seems so tough. Like you just talked about it, but you know, something I like to do each week and throughout the football season, like I, I look, I am not, this is something I've realized. I'm not making my own projections. I'm relying on people that are smarter than me, like I was just saying, uh, for their projections. But what I like to do is I make this Excel sheet every week and it has snap share, target share, red zone usage, and I'm inputting all that stuff by hand, which sounds crazy, so backwards. But for me to like truly understand and memorize it and remember and like take in all this information... That's what I need to do. I mean, like everyone like learns differently and stuff, but I like to actually get in there and like submit everything by hand. And it, it helps me with analysis for the upcoming week. You know, it's easier to remember, okay, this guy played this many snaps this week or had this many red zone touches or this many targets on a given week. So uh, that, that's the way that I'm doing it. And, you know, again, I think that comes down to like, what kind of player are you? What works best for you? And that's something that has worked best for me so far. Uh, Mike, you hit on this a little bit earlier. 
And you said, you know, look, for people who are just jumping into DFS, you know, maybe hopping over to FanDuel is a good way to get into it. But outside of that, what is the most plus EV approach for those that are just getting into NFL DFS, which I realize is tough because a lot of the people playing at this point are veterans and they know what they're doing. And it's, it's a tough game, man. But people that want to get in now, what would you recommend for them? Yeah. I mean, again, I'm biased because I'm, I love playing the small field tournaments. I do a lot of small field tournament content, so I'm going to push the small field tournaments, but I think those are really good contests to learn because if you like the Millie maker and some of these really large field tournaments, even if you are a plus EV player, it could take years and years to like realize your true expected value. Um, in small field tournament, I think there's a little bit more benefit from like experience of like seeing how other teams are building their lineups and like over a longer stretch, like trusting the results a little bit more. There's still like incredible amount of variance over a single season, but I do think you learn a little bit quicker because there's a little bit less volatility involved. And I think it becomes a little bit clearer of like where you can find your leverage points. So I think that's big. Um, and if you're playing the small field tournaments, I'd say like the two most EV things are like the correlation conversation we had, like understanding the correlation, like when to stack, when you don't have to, it is really important. And two, just trying to be able to spot areas where the market is either like overconfident or underconfident. Like this can happen throughout the year where, um, you know, like a, a backup running back is in for the week. And maybe the market's like way overconfident that they're going to get like a hundred percent of the starters workload. Um, and they're going to be really high owned. So sometimes like, honestly, like I'm not trying to be like the person that assumes they can predict exactly what's going to happen, which like a lot of people, when they find out what I do, they're like, Oh, what's going to happen this week? Like that, that's not how I'm winning. it's more like I'm taking advantage of like the uncertainty of and the volatility of an NFL football game. So uh, there are situations where I'm like, literally Frank, like I'm doing the exact opposite of the market. If a guy's 40% owned, I'm not playing him. A guy in the exact same situation at 5% owned, I'm playing him. So just finding stuff like an example last year, um, Gabe Davis in the AFC divisional round was someone like we were really on at ETR. And that's because there was a lot of uncertainty there because end of the season, like some guys were hurt, but coming to playoffs, like Beasley was back. Emmanuel Sanders was back for Buffalo. They had four wide receivers and people were just like, this is going to be too spread out. Like, I don't know who to pick. And um, if he was 50% owned, we might've been like, that's a fade because it could go anywhere, but he was going to be 10% owned like on a small slate. And we are like, oh, well, he actually led wide receivers and snaps in the wild card game. Like, what if that persists? We don't know if it's going to persist, but the market is like too underconfident that it's not going to happen. So, um, you know, hopefully that example helps people sort of like channel what I'm talking about. All right, let's wrap up with this. We're past oh, no. the DFS talk. Let's have a little bit of fun here. For those who don't know, Leonie and I, we work together. And the first time we met long ago, it was like a fantasy football draft event. And somehow we wound up at a beach bar, wasted. Leone was wearing a fedora. I don't know. Is that where you got your Twitter name from? Two hats, one mic? No, I don't know. It's just like, hold on. I'm going to throw this picture up on the screen for those that are watching us. Oh, man. Fantasy Football Today DFS. Uh, Florio is in the picture, too. Our buddy Michael Florio now works for the NFL Network. He's absolutely crushing it. Mike, look at this. Baby face. You've got the fedora on. You still got the glasses. I, You know, I feel like I... 
stole that fedora from Brandon Marianne Lee, uh, like from her <laughs> fantasy football. I think she was with us. Of course, Nando DeFino is like just like an amazing aggregator of people. Like he just knows everybody. <laughs> and we got this huge group together. That was so much fun, though. Florio. Wow. <laughs> Look at that. Now he's all Hollywood. Now he's crushing it. Both of you guys doing a great job right now. Look at this. I got a little mini beard going on. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, for those, if you're watching, you see the picture. If not, uh, hopefully we did an okay job describing it to you. But that was a great night. It's, I don't know. I woke up like super hungover the next day. It was a complete mess. Mike, how are you feeling about your Buffalo Bills? We, we Look, we didn't we, we talked for 35 minutes. We didn't even talk about your Bills. Come on, man. Oh, man. I mean, it's just awesome to be a Bills fan right now. Uh, you've got top three quarterback in the league. You've got front office coaching staff that you trust. They're Super Bowl favorites. Um, I'm super excited. Like, it's still hard to get over the pain of that 13 seconds versus Kansas City, right? I mean, right, that's, yeah. that's going to sting for a while. But, man, it, the AFC, though, is like just absolutely loaded, is like the only sort of negative. I guess the good thing for Buffalo is a lot of these loaded teams are in the same division as one another and beating each other up. <laughs> right. And, you know, hopefully that gives the Bills a little bit of a leg up getting the one seat. So even though the the route in the playoffs is going to be so difficult, because no matter who you play, it's going to be a, an incredible challenge. But if you can get that bye week and, and home field advantage, that'll go a long way. So I'm really excited for the season. I mean, the Von Miller signing too, it's like the last piece is like, get us that elite pass rush. Like we win that game if we have the pass rush. So I'm pumped. Yeah, the AFC. How, do, how, how are you feeling about the Jets, Frank? Oh, geez. I mean, did you have to really ask, Leone? I, look, they made some solid signings in the offseason. Look, this is a process. This is going to take a couple of years. I don't think that Zach Wilson is good, but he was a rookie. Offensive line was brutal. You know, they're trying to surround him with more weapons and a better offensive line. So that's what you need to do. I mean, honestly, they should have had that set up for his rookie year. But, you know, it's the Jets. They're going to do Jets things. So uh, we'll see. Hopefully he can make that year two leap. Uh, I don't have a lot of faith. I, I, I like the young weapons around him, though, like Michael Carter. I think Michael Carter is a beast. I think he actually is very good. I think Elijah Moore is a good ball player as well. So it's just a matter of, you know, can Zach Wilson get the ball in the hands of those guys? We shall see. Um I was going to, yeah, the AFC West, absolutely stacked, man. Um, I, I, oh, I wanted to ask, are you worried about the Bills losing Brian Dable and potentially a new offense here with uh, Josh Allen? I am a little bit, like, I'm not, like, crazy concerned, but whenever there's a change in coordinator, you know, the offense has been so successful. Like, you have to be a little bit more, there's just some more uncertainty added to the situation, and especially because, there were reports of a little bit of a rift between McDermott and Dable, and I'm hoping that it doesn't result in the Bills going to like, like pulling back from their their pass aggressiveness. Like I think that's a big reason for their success, and it did seem like at times McDermott was frustrated with the running game, and like that's my biggest concern is they like start to lean a little bit more conservative. You know, McDermott's more of a defensive minded coach. He's been great at like embracing this stuff. That's like one of his huge pluses. But does he revert to that um, now that he loses Dable? Little, little bit worried about that. Yeah, just don't turn into Pete Carroll. I mean, that's the worst possible thing that can happen. He is Mike Leone. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at Two Hats One Mike. He is the director of analytics at Establish the Run. Uh, Mike, do you have anything going on in the offseason at ETR that you'd like to promote while you're here? Yeah, I just did an Establish the Edge podcast with Anthony Amico looking at the prospect, the wide receiver prospects, how he evaluates them. I'm going to have Pat Crane on the Establish the Edge podcast looking at second year wide receivers and 
Also, JJ Zacharyson looking at his running back prospect model. So a lot of stuff. If you're playing dynasty, you're just like super into the NFL draft. We got a lot of that stuff. And uh, our rankings, our best ball rankings are already live, you know, whether you're playing on underdog FFPC. So uh, if you're looking for some ranks because you want to get some best ball drafts in early, our team's already been grinding, you know, a lot of the legwork that goes into generating those rankings. So we can help you out. Yeah, I know people go crazy over best ball content. A couple of weeks ago, we had Davis Maddock on. He says that he wakes up, he goes on a Stairmaster, and he does a draft. Davis. Yeah. <laughs> Classic I think, Davis. I think he said he's going to wind up with like 500 best ball teams by the end of the summer. I was just like, man, God bless, man. <laughs> Get it done. I, I hope one of those takes down uh, whatever big tournament they've got coming up on, uh, in terms of best ball. But yeah, he is Mike Leone. Make sure you check out their best ball content and all their great work over at ETR. From Mike, I am Frank. Thank you all for listening and watching Fantasy Football Today, DFS. Uh, We will be back again in a couple of weeks. See you then. 